And now on Sunshine Hospital Radio, we take a short journey across the Bristol Channel to Cardiff to join Andrew Reid as he discovers the fascinating, humorous and engaging career of one of Wales and the UK's leading entertainment impresarios. We present In Conversation with Stephen Parry. From a small North Wales village to the international stage, Stephen Parry's life story is one which encompasses West End theatre, television, sport and events. In fact, mention any part of the entertainment industry and Stephen is likely to have a link with it. His is a fascinating story just waiting to be told. Stephen, welcome to In Conversation. Thank you very much. Now let's go back to that small boy growing up in a North Wales village. First of all, can you pronounce it for me, please? It's Trostlanichrugog, and I, sadly I was never a small boy. I um, grew up in a fish and chip shop, so I was very large from the moment <laughs> I could eat. It's only recently that I've lost the weight, thank you. <laughs> Where did you get the natural talent and the natural ability to want to go into acting? Bizarrely, on the first day of school at the age of three... Apparently, on the way into the school, I stopped the headmistress, who I'd never even met, (laughs) and just said, could I organise a show that Friday, please? And by that Friday, I had written um, a show called The Spirit of Brynne Bryan, which was a a council estate up the road from us. (laughs) And apparently, um, everybody loved it. I obviously played the lead. Um, made all the costumes I stole everything from my mother's house for props and that more or less happened believe it or not throughout my school days up until the age of 18 I did something every week for the school Now by the age of 15 you were actually a lead singer in a rock and folk group you appeared at the National Ice Steadford and Mm. you won that Yeah but I'd actually see I'd forgotten about that but a Welsh person who was interested in singing or acting was taking part in the Eisteddfods, which is basically a competition. Um, and I'd been doing that since leaving my mother's womb. So <laughs> you remembering that you bringing up that bit meant nothing to me at the time because we used to win things all the time. I, I won a classical solo for under 18-year-olds at 15 without a singing lesson through cheek alone um, so all these things I just used to do as a matter of that's what I did all day day in day out from that getting by with cheek and doing it day in day out as you said you then had to sort of conform in a way when you went to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama which seems a natural progression I don't think I conformed um, I did have to apply um, but that was a, a teacher at school. I was very, very lucky. Teachers throughout my school life, some people are lucky enough to have one teacher that will help open doors. I had teachers all along the way, and I've still got people now who open doors, and I do the same for other people because what you give out, you get back, mm-hmm. and vice versa. But I, I didn't conform. I went through the rigmarole of a applying for various colleges and got recalls on various ones and my favourite was the Guildhall School of Mucus and Trauma as I used to call it 
and um, I was accepted there. Only they thought I had damaged vocal cords because I've got a bit of a husky voice apparently when I speak. Mm -hmm. So they thought I damaged my vocal cords because I was singing so much. So they told me I wasn't able to do any productions for six months leading up to starting the course. However, I did probably four productions <laughs> that they didn't know about, including a pantomime dame. And I did my first year at Guildhall, but then I got work. But I don't think I ever come for, I had to turn up. I had to study, but I was doing what I wanted to do. So I didn't feel that that was even conforming really. You had the natural love for what you were, what you wanted to do and, and you were determined. Your determination comes right through this interview. You seem to have determined to, to do what you want and make a success of it. You say determination. I don't feel determined. I'm just going along with my, I'm trying to think of the English word for grev now, my instinct. Mm -hmm. It's not determination. I, I'm just going with my own flow. Uh, whether that comes over as determined, I don't know. Sometimes I think I'm quite lazy. <laughs> so from the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, mm. you then came back to Wales. You started doing television at yeah. that point as well. And you landed the role of Owen Hughes for HTV and Channel 4. That's it. I did... Um, I was halfway through my first year at Guildhall and I gathered that my good old friend was auditioning for a new soap opera in Wales. And I thought, well, if he can have an audition, so can I. So I rang this lady at, at HTV, who I didn't know. And now I find out that she was thinking, who's this cheeky beep on the phone? wanting an audition after the auditions had closed. And I said, well, maybe you should see me because I am actually coming down to Cardiff next weekend. And I persuaded this lady to get the producer to meet me, although they'd already seen everybody. And I walked into a room in HTV, having never been there before. There's this elderly gentleman sitting in the same room as me, waiting for an audition as I thought. So I asked him if he was nervous and he said, no, I'm the producer. And I got the job. Just like that? Yeah, just like that. And that's how I've seemed, to, that's how I feel that I've had most jobs since, is there's something weird and wonderful and funny and a bit OTT happened in most of my auditions where I've actually got the gig. Do you feel then you're a lucky person? Yeah, without any hesitation. I I'm convinced that as somebody, and more than one person up there, pulling strings... I believe I'm very lucky, but I also know that I'm very open to seeing what possibilities are out there and I make sure I make the most of every opportunity. So it's controlled luck, maybe, if there is such a thing. From a soap opera in Wales, mm. you then made what could be seen as a huge leap to one of the most controversial roles at that time in a national soap opera and you made the nine o'clock news. Yeah, but to me it wasn't a huge leap at all because I'd been there for doing a soap opera every week for two years or every day for two years. So to actually go and do exactly the same thing in another language of which I had as good a handle on as Welsh um, 
I didn't have a good handle on the Liverpool accent, but I'll come to that in a second. We should say, actually, that we're talking about Brookside. Brookside. You played the role of Christopher Duncan. And um, my agent rang and said, uh, they're looking for someone to play the part of Gordon's friend. And I um, gathered from the way she said friend that my agent at the time was, was politely trying to say that Gordon was gay. And Gordon was the son of the Collins family. They were a very upper-class family in Brookside Close. And bizarrely, I remember sitting on the floor on my brown shagpile carpet in Fairwater, which is literally three miles left of where we're sitting now, uh, in my first flat, watching Brookside, thinking, I wonder who will play the boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And um, then I got this call. I hadn't a clue. I'm not very good at accents. I can hardly do my own, let alone anybody else's. I spent the whole of the five-hour journey that it used to take at the time on the train from Cardiff to Liverpool, sitting in the toilet of the train in the mirror, repeating, which I won't repeat now, the most obscene uh, sentence, which had every nuance of a Liverpudlian accent that you would ever wish to have, but it was obscene. And I repeated that constantly in every mood, in every which way possible, in the mirror, in the toilet. When I got to the audition, they said, oh, by the way, your character's Welsh. <laughs> and I said, I have just spent five hours in a toilet trying to learn your beep accent. And um, they said... So give us, a, let's hear the accent anyway. So I said, well, I can't because this sentence is absolutely obscene. And they said, no, 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 come on, you're amongst friends, do it. So as I said this obscene sentence in front of their camera on the tripod, bizarrely, the, tri the camera fell off the tripod onto the floor. And because I was used to being in front of a camera because I'd done a soap opera for two years, I fell on the floor with the camera and carried on with the sentence. And because of that and the fact they thought that the sound guy was maybe gay and they couldn't tell. And he and I actually looked quite alike. And because of those two reasons, I believe I got the job. And it certainly made your name. <laughs> but yeah, then I, I was in it for one episode and ended up doing two years. And ended up, as you said at the beginning, four hours ago, um, I ended up doing the first gay kiss on British telly, which hit the nine o'clock news. When you were filming that, did you believe that there was something groundbreaking that was going on? No, because I had my own problems at the time, because I, as a gay man now, I hadn't come out at the time. Right. So I was playing a gay character on telly where the whole of my village were very, very proud that our Stephen was in their favourite soap. However, they didn't realise that I, well, they did, I didn't realise I was gay mm -hmm. and therefore I was coming to terms with my own sexuality via playing a gay character and bizarrely through all the fantastic storylines and the great way they dealt script-wise with the homosexuality in that series so early on it actually helped me a lot in my own life after but at the time it was a peck on the cheek and even more bizarrely, it was a scene, if I remember, where I had a badge on my jumper. And as Gordon went to lean over to peck me on the cheek, he touched this badge and the pin went straight into my nipple. So I remember the pain more than anything else. <laughs> so pins notwithstanding, after that, your next move was to the West End. 
Yeah. Uh, my character in Brookside was a really naughty character. It was a brilliant character. It was so... More faces than Big Ben, as my father used to say. I was very nice to people up front, and as soon as they turned around, I stabbed them in the back. It was a great character. Uh, and I kept getting thrown out of the very posh, snobby Collins's family. And after I was thrown out ten times, I remember my rationale was, well, ten is a good round figure. I need to go do a musical now. <laughs> the logic is I, there. That's the logic. There was no question of, but would I be able to? Mm-hmm. I just thought, well, I need to go and do a musical now. So off I trotted. Um, my agent rang again. I think quite relieved at this point that I'd left playing a gay character on Brookside. And um, she asked me, did I want to audition for this part called George in a musical called Metropolis, which I knew nothing about at all. And I went along, and this very bizarre, colourful, mad as a box of frogs director started talking to me. I sang, I was recalled, I sang again, and then my agent rang one day and said, how would you like to be in the West End? And I said, great, but... What, what am I going to be doing? Thinking they may offer me um, a chorus part because most people can be in the West End all their lives and never get a part. Mm-hmm. And they give me the part of George, which was maybe Juvely B part, that's sort of um, the second male lead. But the most important thing to me was that I had a solo. And next minute, I remember coming out of the tube station in Piccadilly and seeing my name up in flats. <laughs> outside the Piccadilly Theatre thing oh my god this is happening and that was it and we did that that was a very happy job very dodgy job because we kept thinking it was going to close every week yeah it it wasn't a very secure start for you Um, no but theatre never is I mean it was still longer than any theatre job I'd done at the time you know most theatre jobs are six eight weeks so nine months in the West End thank you very much straight from a soap opera having not never had to play a part in in the chorus was still rather good and I was young then and didn't have any worries, so I wasn't worried. Uh, as soon as Metropolis finished, I auditioned for 11 times, I think, for the part of Raoul in Phantom of the Opera, never got the job, and had a bouquet of flowers and a massive bottle of champagne from Cameron McIntosh saying, don't worry, I'm sure something will turn up soon, and two weeks later he offered me the part of Marius and the Miserable. Stephen, I'd like to explore with you, if I can, the difference between creating a character where you have, I assume, a bit of artistic input and then taking over a role, as you did in Les Mis with Marius, where the character is already there. Mm. There must be huge differences between the approach to both. There's huge difference, and it's a really difficult question because I've only played two parts in the West End. There's only two musicals I did because then I went on to do telly. But there were two very, very different roles and two completely different musicals. Uh, one which lasted nine months and one musical that will go longer than us. <laughs> um, with George in Metropolis, there was a threat because there were so many cuts. And with the new show, a show changes so much in rehearsal. Um, and if I remember, we had three months rehearsal just on the set because things kept going technically wrong. It was the most ambitious theatre set ever created in the West End at that stage. Well, people, I mean, one critic said you'd come out humming the set, uh, which was not very good for the music. Um, But it was three and a half tonnes floating on air, which was like a hovercraft. And it was very, very technical. There were threats at one point that my solo was going to be cut, and therefore 
I was saying, well, if my soul is cut, I'm leaving because that's the only reason I was there was to play a part. Mm -hmm. um, the song, thank goodness, stayed in. It became a bit of a favourite at the time. It's a song that a lot of people were singing for auditions. Um, it was a difficult song to sing, but I really bizarrely got on very well with this crazy director. And he offered me a job in Paris after that, actually. I couldn't do it. I, was, I wasn't available. But um, he was not the most popular person with the production team, but he seemed to like me. And he let me do exactly what I wanted. I rewrote the song, The Sun Never Shines, because there were dodgy lines in it, such as, the sun never shines because the straights never bend. And I didn't think singing the straights never bend wasn't very good for someone who'd just done a first gay kiss on, on British telly to be singing. Point so I, I rewrote that song. I remember him asking me just to sing it centre stage with nothing on the stage. And I used to come up through a, a lift door through the floor, sing the song, and then go through another, in another lift up through the ceiling. And it was quite magical to have to sing this song every night and warm up because, I mean, it was, there was some big, long notes in it and I'd never had a singing lesson in my life. Let's take a pause there and have a listen to the song. The Sun from Metropolis, Stephen Parry. Is this a game? This is mad. It's insane. Am I leaving a hell to be free? Can it be right? They've denied me the light. Till today, hope's in sight. Now for me, can it be? For the sun never shines, cause the rules never bend. Not a shimmer of light ever reaches me, so the pain never ends. All my nights have been long, all my life has been wrong. It's the same old world that it used to be, for the sun never shines, never shines on me. My heart's like a stone, now I'm truly alone, but I face the unknown. Never free So much I fear There's no justice in here The sweet smell of air Beckoned me Can it be
then after that very, 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 very long note at the end, I then went in a lift up through the ceiling. And back to your question, I made a lot of decisions with that character. However, it wasn't the biggest role in the show. I tried my best to make it the biggest role in the show, but I could only go so far. Great cast. We had a ball, absolute ball. One good thing about being in a show when you never know if it's going to end or not is that everybody bonds and everybody's close friends. When you're in a long-running show and it's going on and on and on, people tend to bicker and different gangs and groups and cliques start. And I noticed with this, we were one big happy family. Because it was so technical, every so often, sadly, the show was cancelled. And instead of all running off back to our own lives, we all used to go out to dinner. So some of these restaurants in, uh, in the West End used to be over the moon because the show would be cancelled and then 50 people would, uh, would turn up covered in strange makeup uh, in our own clothes, but still with the makeup on, saying, have you got a table for 50? Their profits were never the same after the show closed in that case. <laughs> Maybe we should have put that money into the show. It would have lasted a bit longer. <laughs> what it, was a very, it was a happy time, but for various reasons, it bombed. Les Mis then called you next, the role of Marius. Mm. That's a bit of a change from George. That was a huge change from George. And bizarrely, I used to share a flat with Michael Ball, who was creating the role of Marius at the time. So... I knew a lot about what he was going through, but it was really bizarre. I wasn't hot on his heels because a few people had taken over from Michael before I took a role. But it wasn't just having to sing or speak. Well, in Linus, there's no speaking, but if, when I had to sing exactly what Michael had to sing, it's not only the singing. You have to stand in the same place because the lighting is directed in one space and anybody that's seen that production of Les Mis knows it's very very dark so if I wanted to stand a foot away from where Michael Ball used to stand nobody would see me at all so it was quite controlling in that way I had to conform maybe for the first time for two years but you know we had um, the original directors there um, directing us which was fantastic that Trevor Nunn and yeah, John Caird we spent days in them and it was brilliant but it was honestly the hardest job I've ever done because it's eight French revolutions a week during that time before the show was cut to be um, shorter the first act was an hour and three quarters long which is longer than any other show in the West End in its entirety mm -hmm. and that was just before the interval I never got home until midnight on a Saturday night and then we were back again on the Monday with new children moving into the show every six weeks cast changes every six months six week rehearsal periods you have to sing out full out sing out Louise sing out from 10 o'clock in the morning and then do your show in the evening and it was absolutely exhausting however the end of the first act never ever ever stopped thrilling me because having that orchestra underneath you and us doing that march one day more one day more was just one of the most thrilling things I've ever done it was thr more thrilling than any of my solos in Les Mis, and I think that was um, one of my most exciting parts of the show. But then you think, oh, interval, then we've got to get through it all again. And worse still, everybody got killed apart from Marius. So all my friends, and you could do this at the time, were having a fag and a cup of coffee in the green room, where I was with three lots of different costumes on, singing empty chairs and blinking tables, sweating. 
well maybe you'd hit the crescendo by that point so it was natural to move on to another stage of your life back to production then in wales after a few years and what you're doing now yeah i'd i'd never let that go um because i'd always been organizing or bossing a group of people around some people call it from the age of three as i said at the beginning so i'd i'd kept my hand in on all this and during Les Miserables, I was asked by BAFTA um, Cymru, BAFTA Wales, would I produce their award ceremony? And um, they asked me five weeks before the event, and that was just around Christmas. And as everybody knows, for two weeks, nobody answers the phone during that. So I, I produced the BAFTA Awards in three weeks, uh, single-handedly, and then went on to do 12 of those and then set up a company and slowly moved back to Wales and that, now that's what I do. The Ryder Cup, I mean, that was an incredible moment for you, wasn't it? Yeah, but there was, a, there was an element of luck about that job as well. We'd opened the Millennium Centre, we'd done some really sexy jobs in Wales. We'd done all the major um, awards ceremonies. As I say, we opened the Wales Millennium Centre, which were four consecutive nights uh, ending in a royal gala with the Queen, no less, of course, and her son and everybody else. A 10,000 outdoor sing-along with £350,000 of the fireworks. I mean, it was a massive job, and I was creative producer for all of that. But when the Ryder Cup came, that job was meant to be for Live Nation, a big, big London events company. And I was brought in and my company to look after the Welsh element, and through all sorts of reasons that I won't go into, Live Nation ended up not doing it. And very kindly, the guy at Live Nation said, you should give this to Stephen, he can do this. And next minute, I find I was creative producer for the opening gala. Um, so we were ending up booking Bassie. Um, we flew Catherine Zeta-Jones, my old friend, over from, from New York and LA. And it was massive. How do you get your head around even starting to organise something like that? You tend to phone the biggest, most important person you know, and once they've said yes, everybody else falls into place. Right. With my first BAFTAs, I phoned my very good friend, Sean Phillips, who I'd presented the BAFTAs with 10 years before that, and uh, said, Sean, are you doing anything on the so-and-so, so-and-so of October? She As said, you do. No. <laughs> I said, yes, you are. Oh, I said, will you be my main presenter? She said, of course I will, darling. So then I phoned everybody else and said, Sean Phillips is doing some and so would you like to join her? Yes, 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 yes. Um, when I was doing the Ryder Cup, um, I knew the best couple I could have had to front that, because it was Wales and America, and it was golf, was Catherine Zeta and Michael Douglas. Mm -hmm. They were going to be bigger and better and more apt than the Beckhams. Mm -hmm for in this situation. However, sadly, if you remember, Michael Douglas had that cancer scare at the time. Mm -hmm. But she could have very easily pulled out. And she didn't, because I've known Catherine for years and years and years. In fact, I was at her wedding, um, which was lovely. Um, and she flew over and did the event, and, and it was fantastic. You've done the big events, but you've also kept very close to your village, haven't you? I'm thinking about um, Cody Canu. Yeah, Cody Cali was a, a concept for television. It was a reality show, really, where four people were thrown in at the deep end and had to create a choir and learn to 
um, conduct, as you do. And uh, I was one of the four. And I went back to my village. Now, luckily, there are more choirs than people in Norse. There's a choir on every corner. I think I'm the only person in the village that's never been in a choir. And I managed to get many people from many choirs to come together. And I had the biggest choir going. <laughs> uh, I think there was over 200. 200 plus. And I don't read music, but I've got quite a good musical ear. So I had to, they, they sent me copies, but there was no, it looked like Latin to me. So I just had to listen and listen and listen and learn and learn and learn. And we won by 86%. Having a PR company and getting the phone votes did help, <laughs> but you know, tough. You'll have a growing band of fans. Hopefully after this programme, you'll have even more. How can they follow you? Twitter? Oh, easily. I'm everywhere. Um, Facebook. There's not many people with this stupid spelling such as mine. So Go on, spell S- it. S-T-I-F-Y-N-P-A-R-R-I. Pronounced Stephen, not Stiffen or Chiffon or Stuffing or anything else. And Twitter is Stephen number one. Uh, S-T-I-F-Y-N number one. That's how to get hold of me. I'm the production company, far more importantly than me, a very subtle name, www.mrproducer.co.uk. Stephen Parry, an amazing life and career to date. So much more in the pipeline. Thank you so much for joining us on the programme this time. My pleasure. In Conversation with Stephen Parry was produced and presented by Andrew Reid. It was recorded on location in Cardiff. Post-production was by Andrew Reid and Marcus Tripp. Stephen Parry appeared courtesy of Mr. Producer Limited. All music and lyrics used remain intellectual property of the original copyright holders. In Conversation with Stephen Parry is a Sunshine Hospital Radio production. For more information, please visit sunshinehospitalradio.co.uk.